Hi guys, welcome to our new world. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks again for the people who are contributing to all the episodes. We've had Patricia on so far talking about environmental leadership. We've had Ashley Colby talking about social revolution. All the feedback we're getting is really interesting, really useful to guide future episodes. It's brilliant being able to reconnect with people like Patricia and Ashley and asking them your questions. Please keep it coming. It's absolutely fantastic. Today we're talking about something that's controversial, that's something that's difficult, something that's often avoided as a topic of conversation, and that's overpopulation. And I use that word specifically because it's important to start phrasing it in that context. Whatever you believe about the Earth's carrying capacity, how much it can take, whether or not humans are the problem, there is clearly a finite amount of resources on the planet. And that's not really a debatable idea. There are a lot of debates about whether new technology will create new resources and things like that, which is fine to have, but it's important that we at least start talking about this in a pretty sensible and controlled manner. That's what Alexandra Paul does in this episode, and that's why I really, really appreciate this conversation with her. She manages to have a discussion about what is a difficult topic in a very calm, a very sensible, and a very empathetic way which is really important about what is a big issue for our planet because of the fact that it just exacerbates all of the other issues that are going on around human beings. Alexandra is an environmental activist and actress. She's probably best known for her five-year stint on Baywatch, and she's also appeared in over a hundred films and television shows. The United Nations have actually honoured Alexandra for her work on the human overpopulation issue. She was the ACLU of Southern California's 2005 Activist of the Year for her history on environmentalism, voter registration and peace advocacy. Last Chance for Animals named her the 2014 Vegan of the Year, which is an award that it's obviously pretty niche, but I think a lot of us would kind of like to have that award. And I'm getting the sense that Alexandra basically is the environmental activist that we would all like to be. Now, that's not to shame all of us, because that's very much the opposite of what we're trying to do on this episode. It's just lovely having someone on who definitely walks the walk as well as talks the talk. She has a TED talk on the benefits of small families that has over 600,000 views. And that was actually one of the initial reasons as to why I got in touch with Alexandra for this issue. She's volunteered, she has worked in schools, she has done talks all around the world. It's really amazing to talk to someone who has dedicated so much of her life to making the world a better place. Her story's fantastic, her suggestions are fantastic. Listen on, find out what she has to say. I'm really excited for this one. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So firstly, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in environmentalism and activism? Well, actually, I got involved as a, as a kid. Uh, my mom is British and she went through uh, World War II. She was very young, but she experienced that. And you, you, you did not waste uh, when you were growing up during the war in England. So that meant that we you know, had to put on a sweater instead of turning up the heat and we recycled and composted and you know, my, for my mom, it was just an ethic that came from being part of World War II. And, um, uh, but for me, growing up in the country, it became an environmental ethic. Like we were doing it because wasting things was bad for the planet. And so my first act of activism was to write to President Nixon. I was about nine and um, ask him to stop pollution. And I got a letter back, which was very exciting but my twin sister got the exact same letter back. So we realized, oh, it's not personally from Nixon, but that's okay, we got a letter back. <laughs> yeah, you had an impact, that's good. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so that kind of those little acts, my mom is, um, is a person who, you know, we, we boycotted um, iceberg lettuce in the 70s because of Cesar Chavez's workers and um, didn't eat grapes and for Cesar Chavez and, there were certain didn't eat tuna because of the dolphins. So there were these things that she just did, these little things, choices that she made. And I think it had a big effect on us uh, kids uh, over the years. And, you know, I think we became convinced that one person can make a difference. 
No, that's awesome. And okay, so today about population, how is it that population sort of came to be an issue that was something you wanted to act on? I grew up in the, I was born in 63. So I grew up in the late 60s and 70s seeing these commercials with starving kids from other countries and Sally Struthers asking us to help them. And it had a big impact on me. Uh, and there was also always, you know, finish everything on your plate. There's starving kids in China. So there was a lot of awareness that there was um, lack of resources and a lot of people that uh, more people than resources is what the message I got. So gosh, when I was about 12, I told my friend Susie Hollander that I wasn't gonna have children because there were too many children on the planet. And she told me she was gonna have three or four or something. So <laughs> but that was, um, that was a very, that those commercials had an impact on me, the, the, the kids in other countries who were, didn't have enough food. Yeah, I mean, you touched on it a bit there with the, the resources and the lack of and too many people. But just for people who are new to the overpopulation issue, uh, which I've got to say I was, you know, I've gone through my whole life looking at biology and environmentalism. It actually came to me quite late in my adulthood. So why is why is population an issue? Population is an issue, especially because of climate change, which is making it more difficult for us to um, be sustained by the earth's resources, more droughts, less water. Um, it's getting hotter. Some places it's getting colder. So that's making it harder for all these years that we've humans have adapted to what the earth can give us. Now it's going, there's even going to be less. And at present at 7.8 billion people on the planet, we are using one, one and a half earth's worth of resources every year. So as the planet, as the population grows and we emit, continue to emit more greenhouse gases because there's more, more people, then climate change will get worse and resources will get even worse um, than they would have been if we didn't have to deal with climate change. So um, I am 57 and in my lifetime, the world population has more than doubled. In my mother's lifetime, she's 84, it's almost quadrupled. And that kind of po fast population rise in the last 200 years is just unsustainable. We cannot sustain it. And so a lot of people, um, I don't know, they don't want to discuss this issue. But the question that I have for anybody who says, oh, no, population is not important, is that we are adding 200,000 people a day to the planet. And that means adding after deaths. So that's not sustainable. We can't keep doing that. So how is the population going to stop growing? It's going to stop growing at some point. The question is how? Is it gonna stop growing because of famine and disease and wars? Or is it gonna stop growing because we humans decide a rational way to slow down our fertility and actually lower the population? Because even if everybody right now had one kid per family, the pop, there'd still be a population momentum and we'd still grow probably till 9 billion. It's pretty inevitable, 9 billion, maybe eight, eight, eight to 9 billion. Well, it, it, we'll hit eight, we'll go past eight for sure. I've got the world clock in front of me. It's, it's just, I remember being shown it when I was doing GCSE, so what, 15, 16? And I, I couldn't believe that it was just going up. It looked like someone was just faking it that the population was just booming and that included deaths and births and it was still just going like that. And that's why people do think, uh, I had somebody tell me, well, COVID, that, that's gonna solve the population problem. Firstly, people like I who care about human numbers and wanna lower fertility rates and even lower the population as a whole eventually so that we stabilize at a much lower population than eight billion or nine billion. But uh, we don't want population to slow down or even stabilize or go lower because of suffering through diseases and wars and things like that. So people who passively say, oh, don't worry, we're going to die anyway by some, you know, COVID. It's going to all be fine because of COVID. No, we have solutions that are actually positive, good things for humans and, and nature that on the way to getting a smaller population. Yeah. To be more specific, I believe, and I believe this because of scientists I respect like Paul Ehrlich and David Pimentel, um, who's a, Paul 
Ehrlich, of course. <laughs> you all know Paul Ehrlich. We'll, we'll, um, we'll explain. We'll put a picture up of Paul and say what he's done. <laughs> right. Um, but Paul, David Pimentel of Cornell, he's passed away now, but he was a, a food uh, expert, security expert. And they basically say that 2 billion is the number of people on the planet who can live in harmony with nature mm -hmm. and not um, overuse Earth's resources. And that 2 billion needs to live at a standard of living that is not the American standard of living, but the European standard of living, which is using half the resources. So you'd be lifting people up who are using very little resources now, but would like to have a higher quality of life. And you'd be taking down the United States, the folks in the United States who um, are just wasting way, way too much. It's not gonna really, in my opinion, affect standard of living because all the things that we have here in America you know, I believe Europeans are just as happy as us, even though they're using half the uh, half the resources. You're you're <laughs> so you can tell me. I was just going to say I had no idea that we were so great over here because it still feels like there's a ton of waste. But um, I know that Americans have a big consumption consumption um, footprint. Yeah. Yeah. Just well, our houses are bigger because y'all are you have smaller streets, smaller cars. Um, I think overall, but England certainly struggles with density issues. Hugely. Hugely, yeah. But there were there were a few things in there that, that would be good to unpick because again, this this is a controversial thing to talk about, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it just is. And I think a part of that is because of the history of what's happened, um, you know, the, the conversations around population, things like I mean, you said one child is an ideal number, but even just the word one child brings to mind one child policy and you know how disastrous that was and the after effects so i think it is important right that people are talking about it but what is different about the conversations now than conversations before which were you know enforced policies you know what because that's what people are going to be thinking they stray away from the conversation because they're worried that you know you can't you can't affect my rights to have kids kids why are you trying to do that so how is it a bit different now um, first of all, we don't call it population control because mm -hmm. uh, that does harken back to China and India in the 70s who uh, forced families to have abortions or sterilize, be sterilized because they um, were trying to avert a famine in, in their countries and they wanted, uh, they, they, they had to do it quickly. So they imposed these uh, really draconian uh, policies, which Nobody, none of us advocate because other countries have lowered their population just as quickly um, and effectively as China did by um, its draconian message methods, but these countries did it without coercion. They did it by uh, making birth control free, accessible, affordable, and especially societally acceptable. So for example, Iran did this. And Ir what Iran did was it, um, the government had a lot of advertising, uh, promoting smaller families, and it, and it made sure birth control was, uh, I think, free. And most importantly, it made sure the clerics were on board. So the most conservative parts of the country were also supporting these policies. And so it was not coercive. And uh, uh, people began to see the advantages of having smaller families. So. Yes, China and India were um, very uh, coercive and we do not want to go back to that. They did avert, certainly in China, averted 400,000 deaths. But as I just said, they could have done it in a way that was uh, more humane. So we don't, we don't, there's no, there's no, there's not necessary to coerce. There are much more effective ways, especially now with social media and the ability to reach people much more quickly and educate people if we just talk about it this way, then it, it, there's no place in lowering the population now and lowering, lowering fertility rates and lowering population. There's no place for coercion. It's yeah. not necessary. Well, let's, I mean, let's stick on that because that's really important, right? Is the, the something you said there is the advantages of smaller families. And there is this, um, um, this kind of not silver bullet necessarily, but sort of this idea that um, empowering and educating women is, the best thing that you can do for reducing population sizes, but that's not necessarily just a, um, a cause and effect thing, is it? If 
you are empowering women yes they might be having smaller families but vice versa if they if your expectation is to have either no kids or smaller families then there's a focus on on sort of education and, and workplace for and work for women right yes the solutions to lower fertility rates are very positive for all peoples around the world. Mm -hmm. Let me just point out that in the 60s, when I was born, the population was 3 billion. The average family size around the world was five kids per couple in the 60s. We were growing at 2% per year. Now it's under two and a half kids per couple. So it's more than halved in 50 something years, which is wonderful. Yeah. So population has gone down naturally because of urbanization and education, gender equality, all these things have um, encouraged people to choose smaller families because of the many benefits of smaller families, which include um, the kids themselves get more attention. There's less stress on the parents. There's less stress on the community to educate. I always find it interesting when the economists worry so much about having too many old people because of the stress on the economy. But as someone who's entering the old age, I get a little insulted too, because you know, I am still working and paying taxes and I will be into my seventies. That's my plan, right? Um, but babies and kids, one to 18, they're just taken off the system. They're not working. They're using uh, public schools and public parks and public roads and all that, and they are not paying taxes. So I do find that interesting, uh, the bias against the older folks. Um, but um, having said that, there are many positives to having smaller families and choosing smaller families. And you mentioned empowered women. That comes from educated girls. So educating girls at least through a secondary education is the fastest way to lower birth rates. And the reason for that is because if you get an educated girl, she'll become a more empowered woman, woman in society. She will have more opportunities. So she won't think of herself just as her role is to make babies. Now being a mother is the hardest role in the world. And I didn't have the courage to take it on. Um, but still you need to, you know, having thinking of yourself as only being a baby maker is not, um, that's not feminism and that's not choice. So educating a woman will um, allow her to choose and she will generally choose to have fewer kids. She will have more power in the family. So she'll be able to tell her husband she wants to use birth control. She'll have a job outside the home. So she'll have more say in the community. There's so many, there's so many beautiful ramifications for educating girls. Now there's some interesting things that are happening around the world. Now in America, educating girls is like, oh yeah. And, in, and where you are, Max, in um, the UK, educating girls has been around for over a hundred years um, and pretty equal. I mean, I think still the math and sciences in America, they notice there's biases against girls, but in general, but in places where there's a strong patriarchal society and who believes that girls basically need to either stay at home and work or they're not a very good investment because they're gonna go off and marry into another family and not be able to take care of parents later after they get married, they essentially leave the family. To encourage uh, fathers to allow their girls to go to school, some um, communities are not only feeding the kids at school, but giving girls food to bring home to the family. Yeah, okay. There are some very creative ways that we can um, encourage people to change their idea of equality and, and, and well, a woman's role in a community. Yeah, no, for sure. That's I hadn't heard about that. But also, going, let's park Iran because actually oh, that was a really interesting example that you gave. I really want to talk about that in reference to things like the US. Um, but there is also an argument about uh, that comes up regularly about population discussions being racial, mm. and it's actually very divis divisive. There are you know journalists here, you know George Monbiot for one, who talks about it being a racial issue. And something I do find interesting is the discussion around the more developed countries um, where, you know, birth rates have declined quite significantly. But that seems to be an interesting focus. Is that could you talk to that a little bit in the, the, the populations in developing countries are declining, but it's still an issue? Yes. Well, we need to talk about number, human numbers yeah. and human consumption. 
because in the developed countries where you and I live, I'm uncomfortable saying developed versus. I know I, I, I struggle with a different word, but. Third world, but you know, yeah. rich people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll use the word uh, developed. Uh, so in places like the United States and the UK, our family size is generally smaller than countries that are poorer. So for example, in the United States, the average family size is 1.7 kids per couple. So it's under replacement. Um, but in Mexico, which is just south of us, which is what people a lot seem to fear that if we let uh, people from Mexico in, they'll some, suddenly have so many babies will be overrun. That is not true. And Mex in Mexico, the average family size is 2.2, which is just over replacement. So yes, they have on average half a child per family more, but I, I have a feeling most people think that, that they expected that there'd be an average of four kids per family or something. Mm. In countries all around the world, fertility rates have gone down. Yeah. Now the issue with the United States, which yay, we have smaller families, which is fantastic, but we waste so much more resources. Uh, we use up so much more energy, throw away so much more garbage, use uh, so many more resources as a whole than someone from Africa, the continent of Africa, for example. So if you take, well, South Africa has, has a <clears throat> replacement rate that is under two, mm -hmm. uh, I think, but there are places in the world, um, in Tanzania, say, where they definitely have maybe an average, the continent of Africa has an average of four and a half kids per couple. Right. But Americans use something like 300 times the, one Amer I as an American will use 300 times the resources as someone from Tanzania. So their, their family size isn't 300 times more than ours. Yeah. It's three times. So we Americans are having much more of an impact, each of us, on the planet and on depleting resources than countries in, um, that are less developed and use less resources. So there's where the fear of racism comes in, is that people who are not educated about the numbers will immediately assume that the continent of Africa or India is the problem. Yeah. But it's not true. We are all the problem. And yeah. Sense. Well, that's it, because it's often it, often people separate out the idea of overpopulation with consumption, right? And they're two very interlinked things, is the amount you consume obviously matters, and the amount of people consuming those things obviously matters. And those two things are just wildly interlinked. You can't separate them. You can't. When you talk about resources and the future of our planet, and well, not our planet, because let's face it, if humans all left the, this planet, this would be Yay, it would be thrive and all the other animals on it. We are actually the only creature in the web of life. If we just locked us off, the whole web would be just great. Um, when you look at human numbers, you have to look at how much each human is using. So you've got to look at both of those and they're both entwined. So when people like George Monbiot, who is an environmentalist, mm -hmm. but feels really strongly that we shouldn't discuss human numbers, He's making a big mistake because he thinks that if we just lower our consumption, everything will be fine. But what I'd like to challenge him on is that the United Nations is predicting that we are going to hit 11 billion people on this planet at the end of the century. So in 80 years, um, does he really think that the Western richer countries are going to be willing to lower their, their consumption? so much that 11 billion people can all share the resources on this planet, especially yeah. with the fact that now at 7.8, we're using one and a half Earths. So it's unrealistic for us to just look at, oh, everybody's going to lower consumption just fine. And we're going to do it. And they often think, oh, we're going to do it through technology. Well, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to speak a little bit about that. I, would, I was going to ask you about technology, so please do. That's perfect. Because, well, can I, can I just say a point on it and then just sure. wait? Yeah, because that is, that is the big argument is, you know, this cornucopian versus Malthusian thing where people think if you can have as much resources as you need and technology will eventually, as it has done in a, in a lot of ways, to be fair, but it'll eventually help us 
to either make new foods or you know it'll sort out the population problem naturally but that does kind of assume a constant population growth which biologically is not feasible unless you want to ruin this planet and populate mars um so please yeah please do talk about about tech and and whether or not that is an argument to be had right now well first of all if we go to mars what do you think we're going to do there well exactly i mean exactly it's it's you know it's it's a fairly philosophical argument right is constant growth means constant use of planetary resources yeah, wherever we are so technology has helped us a lot no doubt i mean with here in the united states we have in terms of just energy we have solar on quite a few many many more homes than for example in the 60s or 70s um, we have guidelines for um, our appliances. So things have to be much more efficient. Our cars are more efficient. We have overall, it seems like actually in certainly in Los Angeles where I live, the air is cleaner than it mm. was because of the technology with cars. But it's not, our technology is not advancing as fast as our population is growing. Mm. And I'll give you a specific example. Uh, here in the United States, residential energy use has stayed about the same since 1973. So in the last 50 years or so, our, our energy use per capita has stayed the same, which sounds good because think our houses are much bigger now. We have more cars per person. We um, have bigger houses and more appliances with computers and all that stuff, right? So yay, we're, we haven't used more energy per person. But the population of the United States has grown 53% in that time. So the uh, country of the United States is using 53% more energy. Yeah. It's basically about kind of how facts are presented, right? I mean, the blanket statements around this are difficult because every side uses big statements and big facts. Um, but there'll be a lot of people who use those sorts of facts about tech. And they say, well, this many people, you know, the energy per capita hasn't changed, but they don't give the whole story around it. And I think that is important to look at the whole story. And part of that as well is when you think about the tech, it's thinking about how, how countries are developing now. Because whilst it's not necessarily the case that as countries develop economically, their consumption will increase, but a lot of countries are seeing that. We've seen that with, with China, which is arguably, arguably the biggest economy in the world at the moment, and their consumption has increased. And so if countries are gonna follow that general pattern, that is going to lead to not only a world population increasing, but also consumption levels increasing generally, yeah. um, which was kind of just a doomsday statement rather than a question, but. Well, actually, I would like, just like to point out that I want the Chinese to be able to buy refrigerators and have a car. And I want everyone to live, be lifted up. And I think people who say, oh, we shouldn't talk about population. If it gets to 11 billion, that's okay they're actually being racist against other um, peoples who don't have opportunity right now and who will have fewer opportunities when we have 11 billion people because the rich are just going to take more of that and the poor are gonna have fewer. So to me, letting the population grow to 11 billion is very problematic and, and will end up, to me, it sounds more racist than saying, you know what, let's all have smaller family size. Let's get down to an average of one kid per family, which if we did that right now, everybody did that. I know it's not realistic, but the world population would go down to 2 billion in 110 years. So it would go down slowly, um, but it would go down. Now, if we just, uh, we're now at, as I said, just under two and a half kids per couple we're going to rise definitely to 9 billion at that rate. Mm -hmm. And maybe, um, I'm sorry, we'll go to um, 11 billion at that rate, according mm -hmm. to the United Nations. If we go to two kids per couple, which is just replacement value, the population will go up to 9 billion and stay stable. Replacement, when you have just two kids and you're replacing you and your partner, um, there's still grandparents that are living and maybe great grandparents. So the population doesn't stabilize right away. It takes a while. I know all these, these are like numbers and it's like, oh, oh I have some things. It's difficult to leave out the numbers though, because this is, I mean, this literally is about numbers, right? It's not, you know, it's, it is philosophical. It is moral. It is ethical. Yes, you're right. It's about numbers. And, and the, the numbers show that it's unethical to go to 11 billion. 
and that the ethical thing to do is to start encouraging people to have smaller families. And as I said, we're already doing that because of the way the, um, the earth, we're becoming more urban and women are getting more power. Girls are more educated. There's more education all around, but we need to do more of it because even though our, our um, family size has halved in the last 50 years, we're still growing by 1 billion people every 12 years. We are adding a billion people every 12 years to the planet. And we've been doing that since certainly the 60s. Yeah, to stick on ethics would be good because especially now, like one of the first questions I asked you was about um, how is it different to the sort of more prescriptive things like one-child policy and enforcing people. But this is very much about pro-choice, right? And this is, I think, something that's important to talk about is that all the solutions to this problem, they're, they're very beneficial. We talk about female emancipation all around the world, female education around the world, um, contraception all around the world, you know, all these things um, are very beneficial, a greater harmony with nature, which is a really key part of this is just like you said, the world is, is going to go on regardless or not of whether we're here. So it's not that everyone thinks, oh, okay, we're trying to save the world. We're not, we're actually just trying to live a better life. Right. And so this is a positive thing. And I just want to come back briefly to the the example you used on Iran, which sounds like a bit of U-turn, but I'm just thinking about what you said about getting um, conservative people on side. Um, I can't remember the word you used. I'm sorry, but it was the you said getting these people on side was a big was a big issue or a big part of getting Iran's population to decrease. Well, it's important if you think about it to get institutions behind this idea because it's institutions that are uh, are strongly now encouraging people to have more go forth and multiply most of the religions basically that's their message yeah in the clerics involved and understanding the benefits is really important there are so many benefits to having smaller families but because we are creatures on this planet and we are every creature on this planet is inculcated with a biological message to reproduce and we did that so well that now to survive, we have to not reproduce as much. So that is such a hard uh, concept for humans to grasp, especially because it's only been the last 200 years that our population has grown so quickly. In 1830 was when we hit 1 billion. So that means it took 200,000 years for human race to get, reach 1 billion. The next billion took 100 years. <laughs> And now we're adding a billion every 12 years. So bio biologically, it's really hard for humans to wrap their head around. Um, they immediately take offense if you start suggesting that their reproduction should be curtailed in any way. Mm -hmm. Any logical, not by coercion even, but just by logical, hey, think about this. Um, so, and then we have culture, which is wrapped up with religion, which is this message that if you don't have children, and I know this because I don't have children, people think you're selfish. Um, even though the reason that I didn't have children was because I was so concerned about population that I chose very young. My mother told me I changed my mind when my biological clock kicked in, but I never did. Um, uh, that, um, that they think that people who don't have kids are selfish, that only children are lonely children, and that big families are happy families. These are the memes that we have in our society. And they made total sense when we needed to reproduce, when it was important for um, countries and uh, peoples to reproduce. Back then also, when you had a war, you needed a lot of people. So basically the people who were the strongest, the people who the, the tribe that was the strongest was the one that was the biggest. Now that is not the case. We don't need a lot of people to fight a war. So there are countries like Indonesia and India who have huge populations and they are not strong financially, militarily, their quality of life is not great for a lot of people. So having more people is no longer an advantage. Mm. So many ways, but we have been unable because of, I think, our biology and our culture, which includes religion, we've, it hasn't changed. Nothing's changed in our, yeah. in our health. And then we have one more thing, which is capitalism. Capitalism is pushing us to have more children because capitalism uh, survives on more consumers. And it's a Ponzi scheme, though, because 
you can't, as I said, we can't just keep growing forever. At some point, the population is going to stop growing. I just hope it's not because of famine or pandemics or war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I mean, the big word capitalism gets, gets put in because it needs to be put in. And it's something, it's important, I think, that you talk about like what, what's happened previously. Because I mean, say people listening to this might, might think, well, I've got a big family. Am I a bad person for having a big family? And I think the answer is absolutely not. This isn't about shaming people into certain things. This is just saying what has happened has happened. And now it's a case of having choice, right, to have improved lives in a way that's that people are happy with and that can mean smaller families but that doesn't need to be pushed on and i think that's a big thing about capitalism is that it pushes on these ideas of having big families is good and it really pushes on it takes away people's choice in a way sort of subconsciously right and they don't even know that they have the option um because we're so surrounded by it we don't even notice it for example i hear on the radio i hear housing starts I hear, you know, how many houses are being built? And if, so you're assuming that, and the, the, the message is, is that the more houses that are being built, the better it is. Mm. They don't have how many trees were cut down. They don't discuss that. And, and, and for housing starts, you need lots of trees to be cut down. Mm. So there's that bias against talking about um, the problems of having a growing population because all that the media will talk about is when a country or a region loses population, there are all these headlines about how that's bad. You never ever read in, in the mainstream press or even in the alternative press, most of it, you don't really see them saying, oh, this country is uh, lowering its fertility rates. And that is wonderful because now there are um, more wildlife, there's more, parks, there's less trees being cut down. They don't discuss that. And it's because of the pressure of capitalism, because we're so afraid of the GDP going down, which it will, if we have fewer consumers, there's no doubt. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is capitalism is not, is not a system that is sustainable. And so if we want to continue sustaining ourselves on this planet, we have to choose another way of Inter interacting with each other and deciding what what success means yeah. and i'm not an economist so i can't um I, I can't i don't have solutions but i know something like a steady state economy where you don't measure gdp based on how many housing starts there are um that you include in your calculations the damage to the forests and the water and the this and, and the nature when you calculate how successful your year has been yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, uh, you know, you could talk about that for, for ages, but I think it's very valid to talk about here with GDP being the only measure of success is a dangerous one. It's useful for a lot of things, but it's also a dangerous one and doesn't account for a lot of environmental damage, like you said. Um, it's driving and, the ground. Yeah, There's yeah. But again, I mean, to name the unnameable, but Trump, um, that was one of his big things, right? And in the US, I'm just, I'm really interested actually, because yeah, that's what I was going to talk about with Iran earlier, how it, how it's discussed in the US, because culturally, and there's a big, um, there's a big religious community in the US. And a lot of what we see over here in the UK, for example, is about um, the pro-choice uh, abortion arguments. And, you know, we sort of see states that are debating this and we think, okay, well, this makes sense to some people, but it's still a discussion in the US. So when you talk about countries like Iran and getting conservative um, clerks, clerics was the word you used, that was what I was trying to find earlier, you know, getting conservative people on side, people in power, that doesn't seem to be happening in the US. And that's just an opinion, sorry, a, a reflection of what I hear. I don't know if that's true or not. But do you think that it's, it's possible to do that even in a place like the US? Well, by the way, in Iran, I think it was before they became really, really uh, religious, uh, before the coup. But um, so do I think it's going to, it seems to me right now that I don't see anybody in power taking this on and discussing this because it's too tricky. And that's why um, I, who have no donors and don't really care if people don't, don't like me because of my not running for office or anything, how I can speak about this, but you don't see politicians or prominent religious people discussing any kind of um, 
lowering fertility rates at all. Even though you can interpret the Bible, uh, if you want to, I don't, I'm not familiar with uh, the Quran or the Torah as much as I am the Bible. And even then I'm wanting, but uh, you know, the, God did task us in the first, in Genesis to take care of the earth. They say, sometimes it's saying that the phrase having dominion meant that you also had responsibility uh, over the planet and all that's on it. And we have certainly shirked that responsibility. So it would be, a, it would be very, very valuable. And I actually have a friend, the Reverend Peter Kreitler, who is an environmentalist and he has recognize the importance and the power of people at the head of temples and churches and, and mosques to be able to spread a message. And he has funded education in the seminary, in, in the Virginia sem- seminary on in the environment so that the students there can go out when they become, have their own flocks and talk about the environment in their sermons. Yeah, well, I think that's the biggest thing, right, is being able to talk about it. Regardless of your opinion, I think being able to talk about it is a really big deal. Um, And just because we've we've spoken a fair bit about positives and potential solutions. Oh, but Um, let me, can I, can I talk more about solutions? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, please. (laughs) Okay, so uh, we already talked about the fact that empowering women and educating girls is, is very, very important. Um, we also, I just want to say coercion is not a solution. Okay. Yeah. So t- let's take that off the table. Um, it's really important that government have a program that in- incentivizes people to have smaller families, not penalizes people for having larger families. I don't think any of this should be punitive. It just should be incentive to, m- to make people see the positive sides of having one child. So you would, you would perhaps have, um, uh, messaging, public messaging, just like uh, we had in the 70s about not not littering, uh, having it reminding people the advantages of having smaller families. Um, then there's also in the United States, and I don't know if it's for the UK, but we uh, we give tax deductions for every child you have. Well, why not give tax deductions for people who choose not to have children? It's ironic because we do, those of us who do not have children, put less pressure on the local community budget because we don't have an extra kid going to school. Um, and it's really also important that in countries that don't have social security, social security is really important. And that is because when a couple is uh, doesn't think that they're going to be taken care of by the by the state in any way when they get old they will have more children to ensure that they will be taken care of in old age um, rules like tightening up the wedlock and how you treat um, babies uh, born out of wedlock, like making sure that there's a father on the birth certificate. Here in the United States, birth rates went down 20% in states where fathers had to be on the birth certificate, which meant they Mm. had to be responsible for their baby. That's interesting. Yeah. And there's also um, a lot of, there's a wonderful organization called Population Media Center, uh, with whom I have volunteered, that produces entertainment, radio dramas that have important messaging that help women in these these countries where they might not have as much power because the messaging is about getting rid of gender violence, making sure that girls are educated. So there's really wonderful ways that we can help people understand the benefits that which initially might go against their culture, but there's nothing like stories um, or a hit radio drama to help people open their minds. And actually in Brazil, which is, as you know, a Catholic country, they have a very low birth rate. It's, it's 1.7. So for a Catholic country, that's low. And one of the reasons that people think it is, is because they watch a lot of telenovelas there. And if you watch soap operas, they don't have a lot of kids in them. And these are telenovelas that don't have messaging or anything. They're just, you know, killing each other and having affairs and doing (laughs) nefarious things. Uh, And the women have just as powerful and have just as big roles as the men. And so this is an important way to um, help people see that you can live another way and be successful. And then, of course, there's making birth control free 
accessible. Uh, if it's not free, it needs to be affordable and appropriate. You can't just throw condoms out the, the, you know, and say, use this to a woman whose husband doesn't want to use birth control. You might need to give them implants because they should be able to choose their own birth control, but in a country where there's not gender equity, so having long-term implants or the pill might work, it might not work. It depends if a woman is not literate, then the pill doesn't work as well. Um, so you've got to make sure that the, the, the birth control is appropriate, culturally appropriate, situationally appropriate. And, um, and then of course, uh, you know, I say educating girls, but obviously educating the next generation will help us too. Yeah. Um, and you, prenatal care, free prenatal care, because if parents believe that their baby will survive babyhood, which is the most precarious time in a lot of countries, they will have fewer kids. Um, or, so the first five years are especially uh, dangerous, but even childhood. So parents won't, won't ha choose to have as many children if they're confident they will live a long, healthy life. So those are just some of the solutions and they're a very creative way. For example, the electric light in some communities made it so that um, there were fewer kids because if you don't have light after dark, then you're gonna go to bed and you're more likely to have sex. Uh, if you go to bed early, right? But if you stay up late, you won't. You won't I, I love how how those studies lead to those things. I've read the TV one as well. I, I remember reading it earlier this week and I was like, oh, right. What's more soap operas have? Less kids. Easy. <laughs> no, I, like not to belittle the other things, but it is, you're right. It's creative and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be coercive. I mean, that was, that was a message. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's really about culture and yeah be happy and have fulfilling lives. And we just have to help people understand that um, having smaller families can be, not only can you, getting there can be great, but when you're there and with small families in both yourself, community, or the entire world, uh, it's positive. It's just positive for, for everyone. And especially by the way, and I know you and I talked about this, I think at a, when we talked uh, before this conversation, but the oh, the our friend Jeff Holland taught me this um, yeah. about the mammalian biomass and how right now uh, on the planet the mammalian biomass is sixty percent livestock, thirty six percent humans. So there's all about humanity, right? Because the only reason there's so much livestock is because of humans. Mm -hmm. And it tears my heart out also to know that those livestock are so unhappy. So there's 96% of the mammalian biomass is humans and the animals that they eat and torture. Um, and then 4% is wildlife. Mm -hmm. There's only 4% wildlife left if you look at it in terms of the mass of, ma of mammals. Yeah. And that is obviously going to get pushed to be even smaller if our population keeps growing as it as it is yeah even at two and a, an average of two and a half kids per couple that's not enough and when i started speaking about this in the early 90s i would say two kids per couple that's the let's all get there yay now one i think one kid is where we need to 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 go now on average um because we <laughs> we we just um all my talking didn't work <laughs> so, no it's great it's but it's I mean it's again it's that kind of birth rate versus population thing right is birth rates have decreased everywhere birth rates are, are quite low and there's been a birth rate drop but that doesn't mean the population is going to start decreasing anytime soon because it's still above above 2.1 or 2 that you know the magic numbers right and so again it's it's really like doing what you're doing it's a case of talking about it and just being brave enough to say listen this isn't this isn't a negative. It's not necessarily a sacrifice. You know, a lot of people will be listening to this and or listening to some talks and thinking, I don't want to sacrifice my potential to have a large family. It doesn't have to be about giving things up. It's about being connected with nature. It's about being connected with your small families. It's about being connected with yourself, right? You know, there are so many advantages to having small families, but that doesn't to say that having a large family isn't also a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. Having the choice to do that is really important. There's other ways to get large families besides having your own baby. You can adopt, you can um, mentor, you can have an extended family that might not be your blood, but um, commute, communes, there's all sorts of ways. So we need to think outside if we want an interaction and 
um, to, to rear a lot of young people, then we can do that. It just might look different than it did in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, finally, and I don't want to stimulate the conversation because it's been amazing. Um, and what would you say is one thing to people who are not convinced? They want they want a big family. They're not convinced. And again, this isn't about coercion. And we've sort we've spoken about this, I guess, already. But would there be one thing that you would say to someone who wants to have a big family but isn't convinced of having a small family yet? I would say they should go ahead and have their big family because there's so many people who, if they really really want a big family, then I'm. I'm not going to convince them. I'm, I'm going to turn my to the other 7.79 people who don't really, really want a big family, but feel haven't considered the benefits of, of only one child, that the people who want maybe three kids or two kids, maybe we could talk about one, one kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that would be my, my answer. Um, and hopefully then that, but they could also, listen to our talk and maybe it'll open them up to it. Um, I do talk about the future because I don't have children. Mm -hmm. My brother doesn't have children. My sister doesn't have children. So I, it, my, the Paul family are, the line ends with us. Mm. And a lot of people think, oh, that's really sad. But I don't think it's sad because I'm leaving the planet with ideas and hopefully leaving it in a better way. Um, I don't, I'm not leaving it, no, with my DNA and that's okay um, because there's so many more ways to have a legacy and an impact. And that's just another way we have to change our uh, point of view about what makes us valuable as human beings.